All right, so I'm going to read, uh, starting in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, going to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give his alms as those that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue every herb, herb, and neglect justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you who build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from here, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go through this rather large uh, section of scripture tonight, I pray that uh, your name would be proclaimed. I pray that your glory would be shown, uh, that we would see uh, just the instance and the reason for the law, Lord, and your goodness in the law, your justness in the law, and why uh, the law that you gave us is, is good and perfect, but also uh, the purpose for it and who Christ Jesus is and what exactly he has accomplished having fulfilled the law. I pray that would be the truth that we walk away with tonight, that Christ Jesus on our behalf for sinful men has fulfilled the law and made reconciliation possible and justified sinners and those who belong to him to God the Father. I thank you for this work of redemption, for this work of salvation. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay. Um, so, I don't know if you all know this, uh, this is a, a fun fact for me, maybe less for you, uh, but in Alabama, um, it is illegal to spit in public. Uh, specifically, it's uh, section 9810, spitting, it's unlawful, quote, for any person to spit upon the sidewalks, upon the floors of places of worship, buses, public halls, theaters, and or other, uh, uh, other public places. That is, ooh, that Baja got away from you. Uh, this is Ordinance 63A, Section 312 of the 1977 Amendment uh, to the Alabama Charter. Okay, I don't know if you all know this or not. This is another fun fact about the Alabama Charter. It is the longest constitution in the world. There's more than 1,200 amendments. Part of that has to do with our legislative process. If you want to make a law in Dothan, it has to go before the state legislators before they can actually put it on the docket. It's a way to keep state power, but also make it to where it's broad. And so there are 12 laws specifically about bingo in every counties of the state, uh, or in different counties of the state. And so the reason I bring this up specifically spitting is I remember hearing this fun fact when I was a child. 
Um, and I remember thinking that I was going to be penalized in some way, shape, or form for spitting on the sidewalk. Now, uh, granted, let's look at the verbiage. It is unlawful for any person to spit upon the sidewalks or upon the floors of places of worship, buses, public halls, theaters, or other public places. And so for me, as a kid, when I learned this story, I became almost petrified of like where I was going to spit because I was afraid of getting ticketed. I also, I've told you all this before, but I was very much a legalist. And so for me, breaking the law, wrong. So I don't need to break the law by spitting on the uh, sidewalk. God tells us to obey the authorities. And so I would make sure that if I was spitting, it was in like the parking lot next to the sidewalk. Or if I was at the ballpark, it would be in the grass and not on uh, the, the sidewalk. And by doing so, one, no one was ever going to ticket an eight-year-old in Birmingham, Alabama for spitting on the sidewalk. One. Two, I was creating an unnecessarily difficult task in where I could spit because that no one cared. And then three, uh, there actually is, and I know it's hard to think about now, but there actually was a reason for why they adopted this as a part of the charter. And it had to do what? It had to do with long dresses. It had to do with the formal wear of women. Men who had wads of tobacco in their mouth would spit, and it would ruin the, the, the hemming and the streams of long dresses. Uh, but my, my point more so, while there is a reason for this law, and understanding the reason for this law helped me to picture why it's actually a part of the law, I, with my misunderstanding and misapplication and misappreciation of the law, made it a burden to myself as an eight-year-old by trying to add things to it that weren't necessarily true and were not meant for the actual implementation of the law. It is the longest constitution in the world. It has not been updated. There have been times and times again where we've tried to rewrite the constitution, and they just don't want to do it. And it's going to continue to be the longest constitution in the world. But um, I hope you think about that idea of misinterpretation, misapplication, and overcomplication of the law as we continue talking about the lawyers and Pharisees. Uh, So we want to start with how this exchange starts and work our way gradually through the story. So first... While Jesus was speaking, this is often how Luke you know, starts his next uh, story because – and I've mentioned this. As Christ is going around Galilee and Judea, it's not like he has these minutes where he's going to go like lay out for 20 minutes and no one's going to bother him. He is actively always on mission. He's always preaching the gospel. He's always performing miracles. And so while he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so Christ goes and dines with him. He takes him up on his invitation. He takes him up on his offer. And he joins him for dinner at his place. And so it says, he went in and he reclined at the table. Notice uh, there's no mention of him washing his hands. There's no mention of him cleaning. And the Pharisee does pick up on that. But just so this is probably nothing that any of you are going to read into it. People read that and go, Jesus went in and laid down next to the table? Like That's kind of weird, and it is weird. If you think about our culture and what eating around the table is, if uh, you invited somebody over to your house and um, you're like, hey, my family's going to have dinner at 7, uh, join us, and they came and like laid on the side of the table, you probably never asked them to come back because that's super weird. Uh, but the way that you would eat in Judea and Galilee is you would come up to, to the table that was lar- uh, it could be on the floor, but it was definitely very short, and you would somewhat lounge next to it. And so he's, he's comfortable. That's how eating was. If you ever look at like Roman and Greek art, which probably none of you do, but if you do, you'll see that like, as they eat, they're lounging around the table. It's a very comfortable setting, uh, and it's a very intimate setting. And so the Pharisees astonish. It's not the reclining that's astonishing him. He's astonished to see, and Scripture tells us plainly, that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. 
And of course, it doesn't say that he spoke to this nature, but as we've seen in several other stories and different parables, that Christ knows what's going on. He knows the Pharisees, either thoughts or com- uh, comments, regardless of what uh, actually took place verbally. And the Lord said, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did he, he, not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And so this cleanliness is something that we're going to take a, a moment to really speak about. This is one of the main points of tonight as we look at the overall theme, and it really helps us set the stage for who the Pharisees are. Um, so if you think about piety, or if you think about holiness, or respect, or religious for the society— Part of how you get that as a Pharisee is to make yourself seen as pure, holy, and righteous, right? And so we're going to talk about, as it goes a little bit further, their uh, misapplication of the law. But it first manifests itself in this idea of cleanliness. Wow. In this idea of cleanliness, that they must be clean for all things. And so largely this has to take, uh, it takes us back to Levitical sacrifice, and how uh, before the priest could actually do the sacrifice, before somebody could uh, come in, they had to be clean. They had to be cleansed. They could not come in if they were unclean or, uh, or the animals were unclean. Or the animals were found with wounds or uh, any other kind of uh, malnourishment. They had to be clean. And so the Pharisees turned this into a tradition, which uh, Paul speaks on a little bit in um, – I had it written down – uh, sorry, that Paul speaks on a little bit in, uh, I, I think it's Galatians, but it's not the Galatians part we're going to be in later. Um, it's Colossians, actually. Colossians 2. He speaks about how he was earnest after the traditions of the fathers, and that was his religious zeal prior to Christ uh, saving him on the uh, road to Damascus. And so uh, this is a tradition of the Pharisees before they would eat before they would go out, they would make themselves clean. They would appear on the surface very clean, very holy. And so before they ate, they would clean themselves. And not only would they do it before they ate, in between meals, like if they had a, a, an appetizer and then an, a main course and then a dessert, like they would get up and clean themselves again to further prove their holiness and further prove who they are. And that's the point Christ is making. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the, uh, and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? What Christ is pointing at is their heart with this clean issue. They're not worried about being justified before the Father. They're worried about the culture, the society, and the world around them viewing them as justified before the Father. Viewing them as clean. They're worried for how people see them. And so I I brought it up previously, but I'm mentioning it now. It's this idea of this Levitical cleansing. The Levitical is the priesthood for uh, ancient Israel. And so they would cleanse themselves before the sacraments. They would cleanse themselves during. And there was this whole washing that would take place before they were holy or set apart in the Lord's eyes and could actually take place in the sacrifice. And so the Pharisees have taken this and brought it to the far extreme that not only is it before these feasts that were designated specifically for the Lord, but it's before every meal and every gathering and every aspect of time with one another. They have to be clean because that's what is holy. That's what is righteous. That's what is good. They're adding burdens to the law. 
They're applying the law in circumstances and aspects of their life where the law was never meant to go. And they're doing so in the name of religious uh, uh, fervence. They're doing so with the means of being seen as the holy of holies, as being seen as the upper group of the holies. And so that would be like a, a, a good example today would be like, I guess, somebody who like prays very with great vocabulary. And so like his prayer may be great and he may have memorized something great and prayer is great, but if he's doing it for the sake of you hearing him and how well and complete his prayers are, he's doing the same thing. He's really just wanting to justify himself and prove himself and be the greatest to you, but it has nothing to do with what his heart is before the Lord, which as we move on through Luke is a very specific point that he makes about Pharisee prayer later on because they're more, car- they're more worried about the culture, the societal appeal of how they look and not what Christ actually looks at, what, what the Lord actually cares about. They're really worried about this idea of Levitical cleansing and making themselves clean, but they're not worried about actually being redeemed before the Father. And so what we see in terms of an Old Testament aspect of unclean, there's, there's three aspects that are really specific. Animals, uh, pigs are not clean. They weren't to be done in ceremonial sacrifice. And then as you brought in goats and doves and other animals and lambs, they would have to be clean. They can't have wounds. They can't have sicknesses. Another one is lepers. Uh, Leviticus 5.3 specifically says, uh, talking of lepers, or even if he touches human uncleanliness of whatever sort, the uncleanliness may be that with, uh, sorry, whatever sort the uncleanness, uncleanness? Uncleanliness may be with which one becomes unclean. It is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. So it's pointing out that even with leprosy and skin disease, they would be met as unclean and they would separate themselves from the camp until they could be clean. Another example would be a discharge and other bodily fluids. You would be, be marked as unclean. And so hand washing, and you'll notice I put it up there with a question mark, is not one of these. This idea of getting ready for a meal is not an aspect of cleanliness that the law speaks to in this way as we're seeing in this context. It's an aspect of ceremonial law that has been changed to fit regular attendance that should not, to be in regular attendance with meals that shouldn't be this way. It's not a part of the Levitical Code. This is, the, uh, this is uh, one instance of where the Pharisees are calling Christ on it, and there's another where he's eating with his disciples and they call out his disciples for their lack of holiness and Christ rebukes them there also. And so that brings us to the Pharisees, the the religious honorables. They see themselves as extra clean, as extra holy, as extra good, and they want to hold everyone to this standard. They want everyone uh, to be shamed because of how religious, how good, and how holy they are. They want people to look at themselves and look at them and realize that they don't match up to the holiness of the Pharisees. And so Christ, after pointing out that the Pharisees care nothing about their insides, care nothing about who they are uh, before the Lord other than how they appear to other people, issues them this warning. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, herb, gosh, and neglect justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So this woe, he's issuing a warning. Warning to you, Pharisees. He's letting them know that they are in danger of something. 
And so what is it that they're endangered of? Well, he gives them rather graphic and intentional language to uh, exemplify this. He's talking about the tithing of men, the ruining the herbs, and that they're neglecting the justice and the love of God that actually presents itself within the law. He's telling them, you may tithe. You may tithe what you're supposed to. You may give every ounce of mint and every herb that you need to, but you do not know of the justice and the love of God as the law displays itself. You do not know that the law is not meant for you to keep in order that you may reach salvation, but it's meant that the law may point out that we're in need of something other than it. Even if the law sets you in neutrality, which it doesn't, you're still in need of being put into the graces of God. And so the law was given as a, uh, a marker for where we would be once the Messiah came that was promised in Genesis 3. And so he, he's pointing this out. You are, uh, which he, sorry, he moves into with whitewashed tombs. Woe to you if you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So again, and he doesn't use whitewashed tombs here. It's a different passage. But he's telling them, you love to set yourself up above the common people. You love to set yourself up as the religious elite. You love for everyone to look at you honorably. You crave this respect. You crave this praise. You set yourself apart with your moralism. And so, y'all, that's something that I actually want, I do want to spend a lot of time talking about because I, I mention often in passing this idea of moralism, that moralism is something that uh, I don't want you to believe, that I don't want you to walk away with from here, that I don't want that to be what's on your focus. And I think largely because I refer to it as moralism, it can be kind of lost in translation. And so I do want to zero in, in, zero in on it here as we're talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, by all measures, are keeping the law. They're seeking to keep the law. And Christ even gives them that it's not a praise, it is a warning, and that they're tithing mint, they're ruining every herb, but they neglect the justice and the love of God. So they're doing what the law calls for them to do in terms of a uh, bare measure. If they're called to tithe uh, mint and leaves, they are doing so. The problem is they don't understand why they're doing it, and they don't understand the application of their actual lives. All they're seeking to do is to justify themselves before other people. They want other people to look at them and say, wow, look at how good, look at how clean the Pharisees are. And so when we think about this aspect of moralism, it's often what's associated with Christianity. Often, and more often than I like to admit, when I, if I'm talking to somebody about Christianity who isn't very familiar, and sometimes I'm talking, about some, uh, talking to somebody about Christianity who should be very familiar, how they address it or how they think about it or how they want to talk to me about it is that it's a system of right and wrongs, yes and no's, that have to do with our relationship with God. And as long as we do more of the good and less of the bad, we're in good standing before the Lord, and then uh, upon our deaths, there will somewhat be this tally system that lets us know, okay, we did more good in our lives than bad, and so you're omitted into heaven. It's this idea of right and wrong and moralism could save you, right? And so even if people don't believe in God, which I would say is not true based on what Romans 1 talks about in terms of God, when they talk about not believing in God, people still have this idea of right and wrong and that we should do good and not bad. Now, I'm not saying everyone believes that, but largely as a society of how we want to function, that's like the general approach. Even if somebody isn't teaching Christ Jesus or teaching from the Bible, they're teaching their kids, hey, don't lie, be respectful, tell the truth, because those are their ideas of morals. These teachings they can pass on that help their kids become a good person and not a bad person, right? And so the Pharisees, 
have forgotten and completely removed the law from what it's supposed to be, which is acknowledging our shortcoming before the Father, and a way in which he's given us a sacrificial system that we can cleanse ourselves of our sin, and instead they've justified themselves with their works and their actions. That's the moralism we're zeroing in on. And so the reason I bring it up today is because this, if I had to circle one thing and say this is my, my greatest fear that our youth students, that our parents, that our church would believe, it's the idea that being a good person is going to get you into heaven. Or doing good things is going to get you into heaven. Often, I hope, you've heard me preach of the gospel You've heard me preach of Christ Jesus. You've heard me talk about what he has done. Christ Jesus didn't do anything with the anticipation that your works and your doings and your good deeds were going to help him win you favor favor before God. Your good deeds do absolutely nothing for you because you can do absolutely no good deeds apart from from the grace of God in your life, making you a new creation. And so the Pharisees, having no faith in Christ Jesus, ultimately having no faith in God the Father, are doing things that are actually not good at all because all of them are tainted with sinful motives. None of them are about glorifying God. None of them are about praising the Father. None of them are about being a servant to the people around them. All of them are about puffing themselves up and presenting themselves in the best shape they can with the society that they're within. It's moralism. And it's not only moralism, it's fundamentally flawed because there's no rhyme or reason for it other than the worship and uh, the shame they put on the people around them. The only way, uh, there's several ways actually, but the best way I can think about uh, talking about moralism to y'all in a way that makes sense is surely all of you at some point in time have had either a busted elbow or a busted knee or a busted lip or something. And you go into the bathroom or you go wherever you are and you get a towel and you start to clean the wound and you try to fix it. Well, we know a lot more about antibacterials and stuff than we did 200 years ago, but largely a problem with like old time war and other things is that it's not necessarily the wound that was killing people in the Civil War. It's the infections that come after the wound because they don't have the right antiseptics. They don't have the right amount of uh, cleaning solution in order to actually clean the wound. And so what happens is when a man has a musket ball tear through his leg or tear through his arm, he then uses the bloody rags he has to clean the bloody wound on his arm. And so he does everything he can to get the musket ball out and to clean the dirt out of the wound. But what he's doing is putting someone else's blood within his wound. And so by the time he actually cleans the wound and looks at it and bandages it back up, rather than actually making it clean, he's adding more infection that was there. He's made the infection far worse than it actually would have been had he just bandaged it and waited to clean it. Because he's taken something that was toxic and added it to something that was not good, right? So he's made his wound far worse. And so that's what moralism does for us. We're, we're looking at the holes within ourselves, or the, ma- the places where we don't meet up with the law, and we're trying to clean them with our filthy rags before the Father, our deeds that cannot be good. And what we've done is just smear in infection into the wound. We cannot be clean. We cannot be justified. We cannot be good. Our, our, 
our actions and our attempt to justify ourselves actually just leads to worse infection. It makes us worse. Scripture doesn't call on us to clean our own wounds. It doesn't call on us to save ourselves. It calls on us to look to Christ. And so the last point he makes to them in in this warning to them is, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. I'd heard whitewashed tombs before in the terms that they're, they're beautiful on the outside but dead on the inside. But this walking over unmarked graves, uh, he's referencing Numbers 19.16. And he says, whoever in the open fields touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And so one of the easiest ways you could make yourself unclean was to come in contact with a dead human. Specifically here, it's talking about dead humans who were unmarked. We don't know who they are, but we've walked over them in the field, right? So we're walking over unmarked graves of people we don't know. And so the Pharisees, what he says is, you are like unmarked grave and people walk over them without even knowing it. Their teaching is so toxic to the culture around them that as they're seeking to mimic the Pharisees, they're being taken away from what the promises of God, what the law says and who Christ Jesus is, rather than actually present an idea of holiness, an idea of reverence, an idea of goodness, they're distracting from goodness. They're distracting from what the law has to say about the justice and the love of God and what he has done for his people. People are walking over, looking at what the Pharisees are doing. They're adopting the teaching and they're becoming unclean and they don't even know it. They're participating in deeds and actions that only lead to their death because moralism and good works cannot save them. And so what's interesting, and I heard somebody laugh, and I'm glad that somebody else finds it comical, is as we have the Pharisees here, these are people who radically misapply the law, we now have lawyers who terribly miss. Uh, teach the law and miscommunicate the law. And so what's funny to me about this exchange is that one of the lawyers who is dining with him at the table says, teacher, in saying these things, you're insulting us. And look, there's so many times we're trying to catch Jesus off guard and like having him back up his word and, and stumble with what he says. But rather than Christ in any way being ashamed or back down or in any way have, admitting to saying something wrong because he hasn't, he says... And woe to you! And I, I just think that's wonderful. Christ is, is always speaking the truth. He, he pursues uh, peace, but only as it is able and necessary to communicate truth. Teachers, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And here's his last one. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And so there's four things that I'm going to break down here in terms of his different warnings to the lawyers. He says, you load the people with a burden. Typically, if, if you're in trouble with the law, you would hire a lawyer to help you out of that situation, right? 
That's what you do, whether it's Alexander Shinara because you were an offender vendor or uh, you spilled coffee at McDonald's and you need somebody to represent you. Whatever it is, you go to a lawyer and they're supposed to help you out of a legal situation. But rather than doing that, these lawyers, these Jewish scholars of the legal system actually heaped burden upon the common people. And so what would happen is the Jews would go to the lawyers and they'd say, hey, explain to me, how do we best follow the law? And so they're looking, as, as Christ says, they're, they're uh, looking for the key of knowledge. They're going to the lawyers to ask them for their advice. How do we best follow the law? And uh, that specifically, like, this is an example that was in one of the commentaries I read. They said, uh, no working on the Sabbath. To what extent does that mean? The lawyers would say, well, you can't lift a burden with your left hand or your right hand because then you would be doing work. But if, if you really needed to lift it, you could use your foot or you could use your mouth or maybe your elbow. And so if you had a burden you needed to lead, uh, move and you really needed to move it, you could do those things and you would be okay before the law. And if it really came down to it, you can't use your right hand or your left hand, but you could use the back of your hand if, if you really need to move that burden. And so imagine the imagery here. Say you had, even if it's just a five-gallon bucket of granite or, or uh, sorry, gravel that you need to move, this is the easiest way to do it is to lift up and use the arms you have and move it to wherever you need to go. The lawyers were prescribing them and saying, no, that's working. So what's easier and what is actually fits within the law is for you to pick it up with the back of your hands and move it wherever you need to. And so as he's saying, you're loading the people with burden. What he's telling them is you are making the law harder to follow rather than make the law something that proclaims the justice of God and proclaims our uh, inadequacy to follow the law, you're making it something that has become even more wearisome and burdensome than it was even intended. And so that's part of the, the legal rejection, the lawyer rejection that Christ gives. Secondly, he says, and you don't touch the burden. He, let, he says specifically, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch them with one of your fingers. And so the lawyers knew the law. They knew how to explain away the law. And in so doing, they knew the law to such a degree that they would come up with loopholes for themselves so that the standards they set, they didn't have to follow. So not only are they burdening the people, they're exempting themselves from, this, from these amendments that they've made to the law in order to better fulfill the law. Okay? Are you tracking? It's in- incredibly wicked. And so he speaks then uh, to the blood of the prophets being upon them. So the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. They spend their time wanting to build these great tombs and these great examples of these prophets who have died, Zechariah being among them and other prophets who were killed for proclaiming the truth of the Lord. But what we're seeing now is that they will be charged even further because the prophets they are with now the apostles that are coming behind them, Christ is speaking somewhat foreshadowing, but also Christ himself, they are actively speaking against. And so the prophets always are coming and bringing the wisdom and the word of the Lord, and the lawyers are against it because they are manipulating and twisting the law to fit their own benefit. And so he's telling them, your judgment will be just, and you'll be held accountable for all the death of the, of the, of the prophets from the beginning of the world until now. Some of you may have the question, it says, well, how is Abel a prophet? I'm not really sure to that regard. I tried to look into that. Uh, but we do know, as Hebrews tells us, that the blood of Abel cries out because it's seeking to be justified. It's seeking to be, or sorry, vindicated. And that vengeance will be the Lord's. And so lastly, this point is they have hidden the key of knowledge. And so this goes back to my point of their miscommunication of the law. 
These are the people within the society that the layman should be able to come to and say, tell us how this law works. Who know all of the intricacies of the Old Testament scribe that know all of what the prophets have said. They should be able to look at the people around them and tell them the truth about how the law is confirming and has pointed to this prophet Christ Jesus who is walking among them. But they so desperately do not want that to be uh, to the Pharisees and the lawyers. And, and, and it brings us here. The Pharisees are supposed to be the holy Jews who are able to perfectly fulfill the law. And in their eldership and in their leadership, point people to understanding the justice and the love of God by the law. But they misapply the law of God and in so doing are leading sheep astray. They're leading the Jews into judgment by tying the burden of the law around their neck. The lawyers and their communication of the law is completely flawed. Rather than show them of uh, the promises of God and how those promises of God are now coming true and John being there to prepare the way and Christ coming and preaching the gospel that he is here, the Messiah is finally here. Rather than pointing and rejoicing and, and being glad for what is taking place, they're condemning it. The lawyers and the Pharisees are not doing their uh, due diligence. They're misapplying the law. They're miscommunicating the law. They do not understand that the law has, uh, or that the Old Testament has prophesied about the man who is now in their midst. And so that brings us, if you will, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to flip as we end tonight in Galatians 2 uh, and 3. And so I want to ask, what is the purpose of the law? And so the Pharisees misapplied it, and we see that the lawyers misconstrue it. So what is the purpose? Was it meant to save us? And so we're going to start in Galatians 2.21 as Paul is talking about uh, the law of God. Uh, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is where I think we see the truth of the law come out. But I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what is the purpose of the law? We know that in Romans 3.23, we know that all fall short of the glory of God. And we see here in Galatians 3.21, it is the law then contrary, sorry, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. So it was never up to the law. It was never for the law to give us life. It was to condemn us. It was to show us that we cannot be perfect, that we're in need of an act of God, that we're in need of something else. So what does the law do? Verse uh, 21 picks it up. Right, sorry, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive. So the law held us captive. It imprisoned us until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The law kept us. It marked us as a people of God, knowing that we could not be perfect, we could not be righteous, we were not saved, and that we were in need of the Redeemer that was prophesied. We were in need of Christ Jesus to come and to justify us. 
And that's where Paul takes the rest of this Galatians passage in 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. And so what we've seen throughout this text is that the religious leaders of the time have completely misapplied, completely misappropriated, completely misconstrued, completely misunderstood the reason we had the law. They saw it as a way to make themselves holy, to put themselves above other people, and they twisted it in order to do just that. They made themselves these whitewashed tombs that were glorified from an earthly perspective on the outside. They kept the law perfectly, but inside they were completely dead. They had no understanding of their standing before God the Father, and they had no real acknowledgement of their need for Christ Jesus. Y'all, this is the danger of moralism. That's why I say this is my greatest fear for y'all, that you would think that anything I'm saying or anything uh, from Scripture is about us having to be good enough for God to love us, or good enough that we may earn his favor. That is contrary to the gospel we believe. What we see in the gospel is that the law was to be, as Paul puts it here, a guardian marking us as him as we looked forward to the coming of Christ who would once and forever reconcile God's people to himself. For would once and forever free them from the burdens of the law and bring them redemption and salvation through Christ Jesus, which he has done through his body and blood on the cross as it was poured out on Calvary. Since Christ has fulfilled the law, we are no longer dead to sin. We are no longer looking for the law to be taken away. We are no longer looking for it to be fulfilled, but we are looking to the God-man, Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go into small groups, that we would have conversation about who you are and what you have done. And we would know more of the promises of Christ Jesus and what he has accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection. It's in his name I pray. Amen.